Morning, Cornerstone. Today's scripture reading comes from two passages in the book of Job. Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 7, and chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sank together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, we are finally here at uh, the last part of this three-part series of Job, and it's been quite a journey for me. Um, after preparing three messages in a row, I've developed an even greater respect for pastors who preach every week. So thoughts and prayers to uh, Pastor Paul, PJ, Pastor Park. Cornerstone, please pray for them as they, as this is not easy, you know. <laughs> just thinking of illustrations every week is just, <laughs> that in itself is stressful. So make sure you keep your pastors in your prayers as they have the duty and privilege to be able to preach God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. <clears throat> Father, I pray that your mercy will be upon me to preach your word faithfully. Your mercy will be upon the hearers of your word to receive it. And I pray, O oh Lord, that allow my lame words to be words of life, not because of my power, but because of your Holy Spirit, because of lack of my power. I pray these things that causes me to pray, knowing that you are the only one who can make these words effective. Do you see my pray? Amen. <clears throat> All right, so Job, 42 chapters, three weeks. We're in the last part of it. Job chapter 38 or through 42, we'll be going through this. We read, we read a snippet of the passage because obviously we cannot read the whole thing. Uh, and so I will be going through a little bit more as we go on. The main point of today's message is this. God, the creator, cannot be challenged by creation. Therefore, we are to respond in silence and awe, even in our suffering. And we'll be going over at three points. The Lord's response, Job's response, and the Lord's restoring. The first point, the Lord's response. 
We finally have come to the climax of the story of Job. We just had about 40, about 30 some chapters, 37 chapters of Job's suffering and his friends trying to make sense of his suffering. And so we have tension building up as we read through this story. And we're finally at a place where God will respond to Job and give us a clear answer to what is happening. And the answer is not what you expect. Job, remember, he was a righteous man, and he had integrity throughout all his suffering. But within his responses, when we look deeply into how he responds to his friends and his suffering, we see that there is a small remnant of self entitlement undergirding his responses. And it's a little tricky. It's a little hidden, but it's there because it's assumed. Job 27, verse 2 through 4, this is Job speaking. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. As we can see, Job says that God has taken away my right, my right. The only way that Job will have a right is if he is entitled to it. That God owed him something, but he, instead of giving it to him, took it away. We see that even though Job is righteous, he still has self-entitlement undergirding his thoughts. And finally, God appears to Job, even when Job is righteous. He approaches Job and manifests himself as a whirlwind. And he responds Job's questions. He responds to Job's questions as any other wise man would do, with more questions. And the question he asks Job is this: Where were you? Where were you? We see that God asked Job a string of rhetorical questions. Job chapter 38, verse 4, as our brother, Pastor Xiong, read for us. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job Chapter 38, verses 35 through 27, a little further down in the chapter. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? God is asking Job, hey, you are coming to me, asking me these questions about your suffering. Here's my response. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I sustained the world with rain? Where were you? And because the obvious answer is that Job didn't even exist, automatically, Job is disqualified to challenge and question God's 
justice. Who is Job to question God? Why can Job not question God? Simply because God is the creator and Job is the creature. And this is where we get the theological concept of the creator-creature distinction. I know that sounds confusing. That might sound complicated, but it's actually really quite simple. Simply stated, the creator-creature distinction is this. God is God, and you are not. God is God, and you are not. In other words, God is categorically different than we are. He is not the same but different. He is of higher quality than we are. God is Holy, holy. God is holy, W-H-O-L. Holy, H-O-L-Y. He is holy, holy. He is completely separate from us. And there is nothing in between us and God. It's just complete different categories. And because of that, because God is the creator and we are the creature... Guess what? We are made to serve God. God is not made to serve us. In fact, God owes us nothing. Even in our deepest suffering, God does not need to answer us. He answers to nobody. He doesn't need to. And this creator-creature distinction Though you might not know it by that term, you have to have that concept in the center of all of your thinking. You need to have that concept that God is God and you are not at the core, fundamental principle of your heart, your actions, your thoughts, your feelings. The creator, creature, Distinction must be at the ground, the ground, the very grounds of all of your thinking. And if it's not, then Scripture says your mind must be renewed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, God is God and we are not. It's not complicated. It's easy for us to understand. For instance, if I said, I am God, how many of you guys would believe me? I mean, (laughs) I wake up and like, you know, I, even when I shower, I, you know, like, I see all my hair falling. I'm like, what's happening to me? I'm I'm deteriorating. I know, if anything, I am not God. All my weaknesses, brokenness. But isn't it funny that our foolish hearts will make us think that we are God? And this is what I call the Lucifer complex. See, Lucifer was an angel, a cherubim. He was one of the greatest angels. But why was he cast out of heaven? Because even the angel, as great as he was, Lucifer thought 
that he could be better than God. Hence, God cast him out of heaven. Cast him out of heaven to earth and to hell. Adam and Eve, if you think about it, what was their temptation? Why were they cast out? Many of us think it's because they ate of the tree, or the, tree the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what was the temptation behind eating of that fruit? Satan comes as a form of a serpent, and what does he tell Eve? He says, see, if you eat of that fruit, you will become just like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation behind eating the fruit was not because they thought the fruit looked delicious, even though I'm sure it did, but it's because they wanted to be just like God. They forgot that they are not the creator, but they are creatures. And how often do we suffer this Lucifer complex? How often do we think that we know better than God? How often do we rebel against God in our sin? And every time we sin, we always break the very first commandment. That there is no other God but God. And when we sin and rebel against God, what happens? Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden out of fellowship with God. We suffer the same consequence. When we rebel against God, we too suffer a breach in the fellowship we have with God. And so as Christians, we, all, we must always have this creature, creator-creature distinction in our hearts, which means that we must always put Christ in the center of our hearts. Now, many of you guys think, if we can't even question God because he's just so much greater than we are, that sounds arrogant, man. Our, God, how can he be so prideful, so arrogant? Um, about three years ago, by the way, this is a small tip. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I was going to tell you a way to find really cheap plane tickets, but I, it's not relevant. Anyways, there was really cheap plane tickets to Orlando about three years ago. And Sammy and I were thinking, you know, where should we go, you know, to take a small break? And it was like $50 to Orlando. We're like, you know, that, that's like an Uber to D.C. Might as well just fly to Orlando. And uh, what's the one thing you do when you're in Orlando? I know many of you guys say Disney World, but no. It, it's Harry Potter World. Harry Potter World, I, if you haven't been there, the production is just world class, top notch. And I always wanted to go. I heard great things about it. But Sammy never watched the movies. She didn't read the books. Or the reason she didn't watch the movies is because she wanted to read the books first. And I was like, we don't have time for that. You need to watch the movies right now. So you can have some context when we go to uh, Harry Potter world. <clears throat> so we watched the movies. And at the end of the movies, we, we binge watched them. Um, and at the end, Sammy... Enjoyed the series. She liked it. If you guys know anything about Harry Potter, he goes through all of this suffering. Even he, he, lost, he even lost his, his parents as an infant. And growing up, right, he's coming to age, and this is the story of him coming to age and kind of becoming this hero. 
You see all the trials, tribulations he goes through. And at the very end, he actually defeats, spoiler, he defeats Voldemort and kills him. He does it by sacrifice. I mean, I don't know where they got this idea of killing the mortal enemy with a sacrifice, but I think there are some connections there, right, to the gospel. But regardless, Sammy didn't watch that movie and said, that J.K. Rowling, that girl, that author of Harry Potter, how could she be so cruel? How could she be so arrogant to, to be able to do whatever she wanted to do with Harry Potter? How could she be so prideful? Like, how dare J.K. Rowling do these things to Harry Potter? Sammy didn't say that. In fact, I think most of us will consider J.K. Rowling to be a genius, quite brilliant, actually, because she wrote this really beautiful story of brokenness and redemption. But how often, you know, that gap between J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, that gap <clears throat> is big, right? Because Harry Potter is just a character in a book. But I will say the gap between God and us is far greater than the gap between J.K. Rowling and her characters that she made. But how often do we accuse God of being unjust, unfair? How dare God do what he pleases with his creation? I'm not here to show you this illustration to show that God is some apathetic God just doing whatever he wants. No. I'm here just to show you the difference in quality between the creator and the creation and the creature. That distinction is so wide. That gap is so huge that we're not even in a place to even begin to question God's justice. The Bible puts it this way, Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Isaiah is saying, hey, we are of the pots. And as pots, when could we ever be in a place to question the potter forming us, saying, hey, potter, you forgot the handles, you're messed up. Mm -mm. The potter can do what he wants with the pots, for he is the creator. He comes to Job in a whirlwind, showing him the distinction between him, between God and Job. And this is Job's response. This is point two. We finally get to hear God. Job is in a place where he actually hears God audibly and actually sees God, not, not in full glory and his form, but manifested in a whirlwind. And he responds appropriately. He responds like this, Job 43 through 5. Again, Pastor Shion read this for us. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. How does Job respond to God? He 
responds in absolute awe and submission. In fact, he is forced to cover his mouth in silence because of the absolute majesty and weight of God's glory that came upon him. See, we think perhaps maybe, hey, man, if I just was able to see God and ask him the questions and put him on trial, if I could just get that chance, man, I'll show God. And if God actually answers my questions, then I will leave that, <laughs> that meeting you know, feeling satisfied, saying, okay, at least God answered my questions. I'll think about maybe believing in him. Many of us might think that we'll approach God like that if he ever came before us, but no, you are mistaken. If God ever came before you, you will be just like Job, absolutely floored. Absolutely floored. Realizing the difference between him and God, finally seeing with his own eyes Even Job's self-entitlement melts away into nothing. He realizes he is due nothing. Even in Job's deepest suffering, when encountering God, he forgets everything. He forgets all of his suffering because he is so enamored by God's holiness. There is a shift in the story here that moves from Job-centric to being God-centric. It moves from Job's suffering to God's glory. We see a shift begin to happen. And the funny thing is, when that shift happens, that actually answers all of the questions that we have. Job is just consumed by the glory of God, forcing to close his mouth. He can't even respond. He can't even answer God's questions. As a kid, um, <clears throat> even now, <laughs> I have a big mouth. I, and as a kid, that got me in trouble a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up with first-gen Korean parents and, like, they were working day and night. You know, I was raised by my grandma, basically. And um, the few interactions that I have with my parents after long days of work, you know, my parents, if I did something and I didn't listen to them, they weren't having it. You know, they just came from long days of work. If I, weren't, if I wasn't going to listen to them, right, and the thing is for me, I genuinely was, like, curious. Like, I genuinely, genuinely wanted to know these things. And if I got in trouble, I genuinely wanted to know why, right? Even when I had an excuse, I wanted to know why am I still getting in trouble even though this happened. What did my parents say? Don't talk back. Or better yet, don't be smart. I'm like, oh. I thought I was supposed to be, okay. I'll be dumb. I'll just be dumb. I talked back a lot to my parents. And so when I see kids today talking back to their parents, I think, man, it's brats, right? Initial reaction, spoiled. I think a little bit more, I'm like, wait, that's me. (laughs) So parents, if your kids talk back, this is the end product. This is what you get. (laughs) Take it or leave it. This is it. 
as a kid, I was rebellious, talking back to my parents whenever I got in trouble, but, but not here. Job doesn't do that. Job realizes the difference in power, the authority between him and God. Job responds appropriately by covering his mouth. The moment that God entered into the same presence as Job, Job immediately knew he was the foolish one. He was the one in folly. How could he, as a creature, understand God's infinite wisdom and ways? As a creature made of dust, how could he ever contend with God who fashioned, even fashioned him, created him, created this world and sustains it in his infinite wisdom and justice? How can Job question that? Tim Keller puts it this way. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. So I want to ask you, have you had a Job-like experience like this with God? Were you ever in a place where you came to the knowledge of God in such a way that you were just floored because you were enamored by his glory? That you were just floored because you realized the true state of what you were, that you are simply but a creature, and God is the creator. Have you ever had a moment like that in your walk of faith? Do you know God in this way? That in, our, in it, that in of ourselves, we are truly nothing but dust, and all the glory truly belongs to God. Yet, though, even though God is so powerful, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, He still loves us. He doesn't need to love us, but He chooses to love us. That brings us to our last point, the Lord's restoring. We see that after Job's encounter with God, God restores all of Job's losses. In fact, he doubles everything that Job lost. He doubled his donkeys, his camels, right? Remember, he had 3,000 Teslas. Now he has 6,000 Teslas. More Teslas than he can ever, even, he doesn't know where to put them. They're everywhere. But notice this. And I hope this is encouraging for some. <clears throat> we see that he doubles everything, right? 3,000 donkeys or 3,000 camels. Now he has 6,000 camels. Job, before all the calamity, had 10 children that he lost. So by that very right, same vein of thought, would not God give Job 20 children? 20 children? When we read Job, God does not give him 20 children. He gives him 10 children. And I think what that is suggesting to us is that Job never really lost his children, his first 10. Uh, they were just in a different place, a different location. So God had no need to double them. Remember... <laughs> 
because of God's covenant with his people. Job is the one who was doing sacrifices for his own kids. Job was the, the true man of the house who protected, spiritually protected his family, showing them what is first utmost importance in their walk of life. It is to honor and fear God. And he did it by his actions, hoping that one day they'll come to salvation. That's the kind of man Job was. And I think God blessed him and his family, knowing that. So God gives him ten children because he said, you never lost your first ten. They're just in glory. This doubling of God, or Job's possessions is just a small tidbit of the amazing riches that we will have in heaven. Tim Keller, again, and I'll quote him, says this, But resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get it all back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. What is the deepest hope we have as Christians? It is this. Resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. It is because of this, even in our worst of times, we will never be fully in despair. Even in our worst of times, we will always have hope of some sort. Scripture puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 14. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Apostles, Apostle Paul's greatest hope, the thing that carries him through all his suffering is resurrection hope, saying that all of this can be destroyed, but it's okay because I know one day I will be lifted up, raised up like Christ was. And so what is the point of all this? What is the point of Job? What's the point of this series? Of course, it is to glorify Christ. Matthew 26, 59 through 63. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, 
This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Remember what disqualified Job in the very beginning of the Lord's, of the Lord's response to him? It was this. The question is, where were you, Job? Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I was sustaining the world? How dare you? How dare you contend against me? Do you know who you are? Do you know who I am? What disqualified Job is because he was not there in the forming of this world, which made Job's suffering just. There is one who was there in the forming of this world. He was there with God before anything, before time. He was in perfect fellowship with God, and his name is Jesus. There was one who was there in the forming of this world. There is one, and that means that there is one who can actually contend against God in his own suffering. Christ is the only one who can come before God and say, God, why are you allowing me to suffer? He's the only one because he qualifies. Because God, if he asks Christ, where were you when I created the world? He'll say, I was right beside you. I was there with you the whole time. In fact, I uphold Hebrews 1.3. I uphold this world with the word of my power. That's Christ speaking. Christ is the one able to do that. Christ is the only one who contend, contend against God in his own suffering. But where do we find him? When his accusers are accusing him, what does Christ do? Job was forced to cover his mouth, but Christ stood silent before his accusers. On the cross, at any time, Christ could open his mouth, bring legions of angels to destroy the world in perfect justice. It would have been perfectly just if he were to do that at any time. But what does Christ do? He stood before, on the cross, silently accused. So that one day, we may approach the throne of grace with both our praises and our grievances. God, Christ, allows us to do that. Because he is the only one who could have contended with God, but he kept silent. He allowed the suffering to come onto him on our behalf because he loved us. And that's the only reason why we have this resurrection hope. At the end of this series, my hope for Cornerstone is this. That we, when we read about Job, we not only think about Job, but that we are able to think about Christ. My hope is that after reading and going through Job, that our affections for Christ will become even greater. And so that when we worship him, we can do it in greater reverence. 
Whenever you hear the name Job again, I hope that you are reminded of the greater Job, the true Job, the one who is a true innocent sufferer who stood silent before his accusers in order to give us salvation. I pray for Cornerstone that we're able to worship Christ and place him as the creator in our hearts. Let us pray. Father, you are the creator, and we are the creature. But how often, in our foolishness, do we forget this simple, simple, obvious truth? I pray, O oh God, protect us from our own folly. Remind us time and time again that you are the one who created us. Remind us time and time again you are the one who sustains us. And I pray that we today can be able to worship Christ in a new way, in a greater way, in a fuller way, knowing through Job that he is simply but a small, teeny, dim shadow of the great work that Christ will do for us one day, the work that Christ has already done for us. So, Father, I pray, raise our affections and let us come to you in worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.